I believe. I think it's the feeblest form of persuasion is to just assert loudly, I believe. As is saying it forcefully enough will sort of make me assent. I believe in fairies. I believe in square circles. I believe in the dockers. Well, well, bully for you. It usually papers over a real lack of substance. But have I lost some friends, have I? Ah, well, (laughs) please forgive me. But if I believe isn't persuasive, it has great explanatory power. I believe in exercise, so I'll run 10 kilometres a day. I wish. I believe in education, so I'll study hard. Belief motivates action and energises. This week we've been thinking, studying, working together on belief in the resurrection. And we've actually been thinking about three resurrections. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first, the, the first fruits of resurrection, of the resurrection of the universe. We've been thinking at the other end of, of the timeline, our future bodily resurrection, like Christ, we will be raised. But also we've been considering our present resurrection, God making us alive spiritually with Christ. The question we want to consider tonight is, if you and I really believed in our future bodily resurrection, what difference would it make? If one day you know, you're sure, you're confident that you will rise out of your grave with a renewed, wonderfully functional body to live the dream life forever, what difference would that make? We live in a culture that is defined by that, isn't it? Sorry, that's half off the screen. YOLO, you only live once. And if you only live once, that determines how you're going to live, doesn't it? Because it means you've got to make this life go as long as it possibly can. And you've got to fit everything into this life that is worth doing. You have your bucket lists and your your travel lists. and, And you must succeed now if this is your only life. But you don't only live once. You actually live twice. Yolt. Yolt. That is the truth. That is the reality. We live twice. This life is the preview. But what if you did believe in that future resurrection? If you are confident that you actually live twice, what are you going to do now? Because you could think, well, I'll just wait around. A little bit of self-indulgent entertainment, get the, the games console out. I can just wait for the life to come. Or maybe you think, well, I'm going to have a body in the age to come, so what I should do is work out, buff up so that i got the best possible body when I get to the age to come. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, I believe. I believe in the resurrection. So what does he do? Verse 13, since we have this same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. We believe in the resurrection, verse 14, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Because he believes in the resurrection, Paul becomes a chatterbox, a talker. It makes him speak. Now, it's helpful to recognise here that when Paul's talking about the resurrection, he's talking about a communal resurrection. Verse 14, it's presenting us with you. It's not a private, isolated uh, audience with God. It's together. 
Revelation 21, 22, pictures the, the new age, the age to come, as like a city. It's a pretty bizarre city. It's cube-shaped. It, it, the, the size of each side of the cube is about here to Adelaide. That's a pretty big cube, isn't it? But it's a city where, where together, as God's people, you're not out in the garden on your own somewhere. And Paul is acutely aware of that as he longs to be with the Corinthians on that day. And because he believes, he speaks. And he says in verse 15, his speaking is for them and for their benefit. All this is for your benefit. So that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. He speaks the grace of God. It's not just he has verbal diarrhea, he can't help himself, he just speaks about anything and everything, even the dockers. No, he speaks about the grace of God. And that's a powerful thing to speak about, because as you speak about the grace of God, and people experience the grace of God in the gospel that you speak to them, thanksgiving starts to overflow all over the place to God, whose grace it is. Have you seen that happen? I remember one of the students at UWA, I met up with him in first year. He was doing engineering. He had five years at uni. And he'd come to uni with a group of mates from school who were all doing engineering, and they'd started to make some other friends. But he was the only Christian in that group of roughly sort of five or six, extended to ten. And he said to me, Tim, I cannot imagine any of those friends ever becoming Christians. I said, boy, that's a bit depressing, isn't it? I said, well, listen, can I ask you to do one thing? Just start praying for those friends. And he did. Two years later, nothing had happened. He lived in a house on Fairway, which you know UWA is just it's opposite the university. And his house became a bit of a sort of hub for that group of friends. They'd just drop in there uh, all day, every day almost. And he used to leave some of his Christian books on the coffee table. And about two years after that conversation, one of his friends said, can I borrow that book? And Calvin said, yeah, sure, not expecting much from it. He took the book. Two weeks later, one of the other friends said, hey, I, I heard you're going on a, on a camp, a, a Christian camp at Easter. Can I come with you? And he almost dropped dead. <laughs> you want to come with me to my Christian camp? But he said, yeah, sure, you can come. And over the next two years, five of those friends became Christians. It was, it was stunning. And... and, and that hasn't happened every year. It happens occasionally like that. Groups of friends come to Christ. It was one by one. It was slow. It was, but, but it was definite. I had the privilege of preaching at the baptism of one of those guys. And we arranged that. We'd actually offer that if any of them became a Christian that night, we'd baptise them on the spot. One of them did. He's now a Baptist pastor at Ellenbrook. It was exciting. And one of the great things to see was The CU saw that happening, the Christians in CU, and they started to to be heartened. They started to rejoice and give thanks to God. It was was a a joyful gratitude that started to just go everywhere. Last year, one of the students at UWA, I talk talk about UWA because that's where I work. He, he He was in his last semester of uni. And um, there was a guy in one of his classes, they hardly knew each other. But he he sort of thought, oh, I'll just ask him if he'll read Mark's Gospel with me. And he asked him, and the guy said, yeah, actually, I'd, I'd be interested in doing that. And they read for just over a semester, and that guy trusted Jesus. 
And it turned out that his life was actually unravelling. The Christian friend didn't know that. He just asked him. And again, the effect on us was just, isn't God amazing that he will rescue a person? He'll use one of us to give someone eternal life. Grace is extending to more and more. And thanks is just overflowing to God because it's happening. Doesn't that sound wonderful? And it is. It's win, win, win. But what does it actually feel like for Paul to do that, to speak about the grace of God? Well, he explains it in verses 7 following, 7 to 12. Let me just read it to you. I want you to listen for the words about life and death. We have this treasure, verse 7, in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. The treasure is the treasure of the gospel. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then death is at work in you, but life, sorry, in us, but life is at work in you. What does it feel like for Paul to speak this gospel? Well, it feels like dying. I don't know, have you ever been either sick enough or in pain enough that you just wanted to die? When I get a headache, that's what I feel like. Because it feels like the headache will never go away and it just bores into your head and, and you think, I just want to die. I can't live with this. And you take a Panadol and it goes. <laughs> but for Paul, that was day-by-day day experience. Dying. He, he talks about it as hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. The grinding ongoing, intense opposition wherever he goes. He's not welcomed. There are no plaques put up, Paul, citizen of the year in Thessalonica or Ephesus or anything like that. Instead, they put posters of him up, find this man, we want to do him in. He says it's like carrying around the death of Jesus. Verse 16, he talks about it as wasting away. His body is just wearing out with all the difficulty and suffering, all the oppression that he comes under. He's struck down again and again and again. Of course, he says what's happening to him is really in the same vein as what happened to Jesus. Jesus came to give his life to save people. And even when he was giving his life, how did people react? Did they thank him for it? Did they bow down in awe at his gratitude and grace to them? No. They pelted him with with jeers and insults, didn't they? Come on, Jesus. You saved others, save yourself. Now, to speak up about Jesus is usually not welcomed. I don't know what it's like with your friends. I don't know what you fear as you think about the possibility of talking about Jesus with your friends. I'm very glad we live in Australia where people are basically too polite to throw rocks at you, even though that's what they would like to do often. They tolerate us which probably means they don't tolerate us. Rico Tice, in his really helpful little book called Honest Evangelism, his, his contention is that in order to tell people about Jesus in our sort of society, there's a pain line that you need to cross. It's unavoidable. You can't avoid that high risk 
that you might get hurt, rejected by the people you speak to Jesus about. Paul says that feels like dying day after day after day. Or in verse 7 he says, I feel like this clay jar. In the ancient world, most commodities came in these little, cheap, fragile, disposable clay jars. Um, I guess the modern equivalent would probably be the cardboard box you get your big Mac in or the polystyrene cup that you drink your coffee out of and throw away. Cheap, fragile, disposable. He says, that's what it actually feels like. That's what I'm like. I'm like a clay jar. It's how people treat me and it's how I feel. And how is he with that? He says, I'm actually okay with that. Because it shows that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. You see what he's saying? If Paul was a a popular, welcomed, cool guy, impressive in every way, and he told people the gospel and people believed it, there'd be this niggling doubt in the back of his mind. Did they believe it because I'm the cool guy and they want to get in with me or because they believe the message itself? It's the same dilemma that every pretty girl has. It's a terrible dilemma. Us guys make it worse. The dilemma is, do they like me because I'm pretty or do they like me for who I am? It's a very hard thing to live with. And Paul is very glad he's not like the pretty girl. He's not impressive. He's, He's not someone that everybody likes. He's uncool. He's bumbling and unpopular. And therefore, if somebody believes, then the channel is not the, the thing with the power, it's God's power that does it. They genuinely have been converted. Some of us think that I can only talk about Jesus if I'm cool. They'll only listen to me if I'm popular. No, it's actually an advantage not to be. To be one of those awkward people. You know those people? You're not one of them, I know. But there's a real advantage in being one of those people because... When you bumble around and you're able to get the gospel out, then if they believe it, it's because the gospel has the power. It's the treasure, not you. He says, speaking about Jesus, it's like dying. It's also like ploughing concrete. I don't know if we've ever tried to do that, but it's not easy. The ground feels very hard. In verse 4, he talks about the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the light of the gospel. That displays the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. They're blind. They can't see it. He he keeps telling many, many people about Jesus, but most of them don't respond. They're they're dead. It's sort of really bizarre. I've got the best news in the world. Jesus has conquered death. He's brought immortality and and life to light to people who know they're dying. Is there any better news in the universe than that if it's everybody like a glove? And most people say, get out of my life. You'd expect at least some cautious interest, wouldn't you? I'm finding this a bit hard to believe it's so good, but I really want to explore it. I hope it's true. But instead, so often, he got, we get, outright rejection. Don't shove your religion on me. That's perplexing, isn't it? And Paul lives with that perplexing thing day after day. It's so disheartening that Paul says twice in this chapter, we don't lose heart. When do you say we don't lose heart? Only when everything around you would expect you to lose heart and just give up and stop. And I guess most of us feel like that more than once. Why bother? It's too risky. It's too painful. It's like ploughing concrete. I get no response. 
Why speak up when it just makes life tougher? It's tough enough already with exams and work and my brother. And why add more pain to it? Well, listen to Paul. Because he shares what keeps him going. What helps him get up each morning praying for people to come to know Christ and planning how he might contribute to that that day? What keeps him going? Opening his mouth about Jesus, given even half an opportunity, even though he still carries the scars from yesterday. It's about resurrection. In verse 11, For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. I don't know whether you see what he's saying. He says that he experiences the life of Jesus in his very mortal, weak bodies, body when he's being crushed and opposed. When he's speaking up for Jesus and everything is coming down on his head, that's when he experiences the life of Jesus, the power that raised him from the dead. How come? Well, it's because... When he's hard-pressed and perplexed and persecuted and struck down, in the life that you'd expect him to give up and say, this isn't worth it, I'm quitting, he doesn't. He isn't crushed. He doesn't fall into despair. He's not abandoned. He's not destroyed. You'd expect him to be. I'd expect I would be. But he isn't. There's a resilience that comes because the life of God by the Spirit is empowering him to do it. Life is at work within him. Now, this is more than he simply feels a bit alive. A cold shower will do that for you. Now, this is a a resilience, a power to to keep going, even though everything is against him. The opposition can't crush him. Opposition won't stop him. Suffering won't make him quit. Why? Because he's a tough guy? No, because he experiences the life of Jesus when he's been crushed. It's a helpful thing to understand because we all need the power of God to speak for him. We need it desperately. How are we going to get it? When does it come? You might think, well, what I should do is just put my feet up on my lounge and sit there and wait and wait till God zaps me with power and then I'll have the power to go and tell people. That's not how it works for Paul, is it? You see how it works? It works for Paul... When he gets out there and tells people and he expects it to crush him, but God strengthens him so it doesn't crush him. It doesn't come when he's sitting at home in the lounge. It comes when he's out there doing it. And if you know that, if you've experienced that, that, that's true, isn't it? God empowers us. God strengthens us to keep going in those sort of situations. He gives us the power to love our enemies and persist in presenting Christ to them and forgive them for the way they treat us and to keep speaking. Naturally, I wouldn't do that. I couldn't do it. But Christ's resurrection life empowers Paul and empowers us. So there's life in us, but there's also life in you, Corinthians, verse 12. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. That is, as he speaks the gospel, there are some people, many people in fact, for whom those words become life-changing. They impact them. They are are, are taken from death to life. 
In verse 6, he talks about God saying, let light shine out of darkness. And that's what God does. He shines the light of the truth of Jesus, the, the wonder of Jesus into their hearts. So they respond. They're raised from death to life. And that's happening on our campuses. One by one, person by person. God is doing that. And it's so exciting to see. Our prayer and hope is that there'll be more and more. We'll double the reach. And within that, we'll see many more come to faith, we pray. And this life that he speaks about is new covenant life. We we won't read chapter 3, but chapter 3, he talks about the old covenant of law. Remember, God gave the law to Israel at Mount Sinai, and it was very impressive. There was smoke and thunder, there was earthquakes, and the very voice of God came from the mountain speaking. They all heard it with their own ears. They were so petrified by it. They said, God, please stop. Moses, can you go and listen to God and tell us what he says? It really was very impressive. But that covenant only brought death and condemnation. But the gospel of Jesus, the new covenant, brings life and freedom. It brings life and transformation by the Holy Spirit. It's such a thrill to to speak those simple words about Jesus, about this new covenant, and see God raise people from the dead, reconcile them with their God, their creator, and reverse their destiny forever. Just through my weak, simple words. That's an amazing thing. It's so much of a thrill that Paul says speaking this, this gospel is really an act of God's mercy. It's by God's mercy we have this ministry, verse 1. A sense of wonder, of privilege, that God would entrust his message to people like us, clay jars. If Moses was chuffed to get the Ten Commandments, how chuffed do we feel when we bring eternal life to friends and strangers? So why doesn't Paul lose heart? Why doesn't the opposition just force him under The lack of response crushing, put him off because of the resurrection. He believes that he and they will be resurrected. And as he speaks, he experiences the resurrection power of God empowering him. And I presume that is true for us as well. But in verse 17, he adds another reason that he doesn't lose heart. Verse 16, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He talks about the troubles of now versus the glory of then. Do you remember this from Romans 8? The present suffering versus the future glory. And here he uses the picture of that the present troubles are just light and momentary. The future glory is weighty and eternal. And he says, do the maths. Uh, 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 Light, momentary, like a a feather. Weighty, eternal, like like a brick. Do the maths. Which is is better? Which is worth having? Which is worth holding on to? The present pain, although it never feels light and momentary at the time, does it? The headache, the rejection of friends. And I need someone to say to me, The pain won't last. And it doesn't. A few days later, the headache's gone. Look back and say, why was I such a wuss? So what are a few years compared to eternity? What are 60 years compared to eternity? Do the maths. 
What's a broken heart and a few scars now compared to glory in the resurrection life, co-heir with Christ, enjoying forever a deep joy and satisfaction? Do the maths. But it's more than that. Verse 17, he says, the suffering produces the glory. The pain now actually contributes to the glory then. How? Well, don't think of it in mercenary terms as if God says, oh, you've suffered a bit. Here, let me pay you out. Let me compensate you for it. No, it's different to that. You see, when Paul speaks, two things happen. Two outcomes. He suffers and people come to life. And in verse 14, he, he talks about the day then of resurrection when he will be presented with those people to God. A day of presentation. You know what those days are like, aren't you? You know, your presentation day or whatever it is called at, at, at school, end of year 12. Um, we used to call it speech night, what it's called now, graduation, whatever it is. And the presentations are made. And people who deserve something are presented. And Paul looks forward to that day when they together, he with the Corinthians, will be presented. And those presentations are, are, are glory events. You get an insight into what this is like in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Get a cup up on the screen so you don't need to change to it. I will because I want to read it. Um, Paul, reflecting on his longing to see the Thessalonians, he says, What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Isn't you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Just listen to what he's saying. He's saying at the resurrection, the Thessalonian Christians will be Paul's joy and crown and glory. Now, the backstory is that Paul had worked really hard and actually suffered quite a lot to bring the gospel of Jesus to the Thessalonians. He prayed and laboured, lots of sweat and tears, to see them established in Christ. And he says, on resurrection day, when I see you there, when I look across the crowd of all those people there, and you're there, the people I I prayed for and laboured for, I'll be just thrilled at that, that you're there. Whatever pain it took, it'll all be worth it when you're there on that day, because they are his reward. Now, See how this is not mercenary. See, there'll be no joy for Paul in them being there if he didn't love them. If he was just using them to get his own reward. The joy is because he does love them. He's poured his heart and guts out for them so that they'll be there on the last day. So when he sees them there, he says, I will be thrilled. It'll be the best day of my life. He's like a proud parent. Jesus, I want to present these people to you. They're yours. And the Thessalonians will will call Paul over and say, Paul, we're here because of you. And Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's joy. The party's going to begin. Come and be part of the party. Can you imagine the party? There's Paul with the Thessalonians recalling the tears he shed for them. And what was pain back then has been turned to joy. Because the Thessalonian brothers and sisters are there with him, marvelling at what God has done to bring them through Paul's uh, sufferings. And I guess they'll regale each other with all the stories of the ups and downs, the dangers, the fears, the, the delights and relief. And Jesus will be in the middle of that joy and gratitude will just flow like a river. Paul will rejoice that the Thessalonians are there 
And the Thessalonians will rejoice that Paul's rejoicing that the Thessalonians are there. And Paul will rejoice that the Thessalonians are rejoicing in his joy in the Thessalonians. And it will just go on and on. Suffering now produces glory and joy then. Light and momentary suffering brings heavy eternal joy. I think it's more than interesting that Jesus' resurrection body still had his scars of crucifixion. Because it's not what you'd expect, is it? Come on, resurrection bodies, they're perfect, aren't they? Why has he still got these holes in his hands? Well, in the resurrection, the scars are the glory of Jesus, aren't they? They'll remind him and us of our salvation. They'll be not wounds that are painful, but scars that are no longer painful, but just bring back the reality and, and the memories. And I presume Paul, in his resurrection, he'll have scars, have some physical scars from those lashes he received, probably some psychological scars, the suffering, the scars from the suffering when he spoke up. And they'll be his glory. So what does Paul speak when it inevitably brings opposition, rejection and pain? Because he believes in the resurrection. Their resurrection, his resurrection. So without resurrection, it doesn't make any sense, does it? If this is the only life you've got, if you only live once, you wouldn't do this with your life, would you? No, only if you believe in the resurrection. And with the resurrection, it just makes sense, doesn't it? Of course I'd live this way if I'm going to be resurrected eternally. And how does Paul speak? Verses 1 to 6, he talks about speaking the truth plainly. He's straightforward. There's no deception or distortion. <coughs> there are all sorts of ways, I think, we're tempted to deceive and uh, uh, by distorting the gospel change the message to make it more attractive. We simply present Jesus as the sort of genie who'll satisfy all your desires. Or we do false advertising. We leave out that the social soccer game will include a talk about Jesus. Or even in personal friendships, we conceal from them our longing and desire that they come to know Jesus and be saved in case it puts them off. We pretend not to care too much. I hope it's a pretense. Listen to what an atheist has said. This is Penn Gillette from Penn and Teller, very outspoken atheist. He says, if you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling them this, and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling this because that would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate someone to not proselytise? How much do you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that. Now, this is an atheist telling us to get on with evangelism. You hear that? He can't respect Christians who don't because they're faking it. Hey, somehow we've got to tell our friends, I, I really want you to, to know Christ. It's the thing I want most of all. But we so often hide it. We're not straightforward. And the straightforward message in verse 5 is that Jesus is Lord. We proclaim... Sorry, I need to go back to 2 Corinthians. Uh, verse 5. What we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Jesus as Lord. I hope you've seen this week 
the clarity of that message. Jesus is Lord. It's shorthand for Jesus is the boss of the universe. He's been crowned. Every knee should bow. But it's also shorthand for Jesus is the victorious Lord who's conquered death and evil. He alone can save you because he's Lord. And who are we? Well, we're just servants. That's what our friends should experience. We're we're servants. We're not bossing them around. We're not forcing religion down their throat. But we love them enough to serve them and tell them. And Paul says he fixes his eyes on what is unseen. In verse 18, what we fix our eyes on is not the seen, which is temporary, this this world, YOLO, since what is seen is temporary, uh, but what is is unseen is eternal. Belief in the resurrection is not just a belief that you tick off and say, oh, yeah, believe that. But for Paul, it's his whole focus and hope. He, He sets his eyes on it. And that belief liberates Paul to live that difficult, hard life now, full of suffering, unpopular, feeling fragile and vulnerable. By choice, he chooses that life because he believes in resurrection. So what about us and our life? Do you believe in the resurrection to come? Do you believe that you actually live twice in a future glory, that God will raise you bodily to imperishable, glorious, physical life, that you will have a share in the new creation and in that work that is truly satisfying and fulfilling, that you'll be saturated with the joy of celebrating eternal achievements, yours and others, forever. If you know that and you're convinced of it, do you see how liberating that is? Because it takes so much weight off your shoulders. You don't have to get it all now. You don't have to succeed to be respected and be respected. You don't have to uh, um, stay healthy as long as you possibly can. You don't need to see everything there is to see in this world. We've got one of those coffee table books at home. I think it's called The 97 Best uh, Waterfalls in the World. And they are spectacular, let me tell you. And I love waterfalls because we haven't got any around Perth, not really. One of them is, I think it's 968 metres tall. That is tall, isn't it? And I look at the photo and I think, I've got to see this thing. It's in the middle of South America, it's pretty hard to get to. I've got to see it. But if I'm going to be resurrected in a new creation, there's going to be better waterfalls in the new creation, isn't there? I don't need to see it. Do I have to experience all that life has to offer? The the adrenaline rushes, the passion of sex, the calm of total relaxation? No. Do I need to reach my full potential? Play footy at the highest level, master the French horn and play with the wazo to learn all there is about spiders? No. And so what comes into play is delayed gratification. You know it, don't you? You know it from study. Of course you know that the exams will be over in a few days or a few weeks. You'll study hard. You'll put yourself through pain and suffering because at the other side of that, there's fun and joy and relief. And so you delay your gratification. See, God is not saying, listen, I just want you to suffer. I never want you to have any joy whatsoever. No, God is saying, I've destined you for inexpressible joy and glory. You don't deserve it, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. An eternal weight of glory. But in the meantime, there's a world dying and dead, living under the reign of death. People bound for hell, 
I've sent my son to die and rise to save them. Let's delay the joy to tell them. Let's deepen the future joy by labouring for their salvation now, for putting up with that light and momentary troubles for the sake of eternity. That's what the fishes are doing, isn't it? Going to Peru at 57 is not everybody's idea of a holiday. Trying to learn Spanish, going to live up in the hills in, in, in an isolated, difficult place, trying to work with people who are taking the gospel to their fellow countrymen, train them and encourage them. Like, who would choose that as their life if YOLO was true? Nobody in the world. But if YALT is true, it makes sense. It's sort of a good thing to do, isn't it? It's a, it's a thinkable thing to do if you know that you'll be resurrected. To teach a Sunday school class of year sixes, six boys like I was, will, will be hard. Absolutely. Will it be worth it? Yes. Even the scars you get will make resurrection better. So what about your present choices? Because I'm old. I've done my dash mainly. But I'm speaking to a group who are just on the cusp of adult life. God willing, you've got maybe 50 productive years ahead of you. And the world is your oyster. Most of you are privileged. On a world scale, you're wealthy, educated, you've got an Aussie passport, and probably soon you'll have a COVID vaccination. So what are you going to do with that? Of course, you could go in one of two broad directions, can't you? This is the big picture. You can do YOLO. That's what most people are doing. That's the normal. That's the default. That's where all the pressure comes, usually from our parents, the expectations of, of all our friends, and that's what our hearts would love. Just do YOLO and leave Jesus as a hobby on the side. Or you can use your life for the Lord Jesus Confident of resurrection. Swimming against the current, doing things that are not expected. Liberated by that confidence of resurrection. Confidence that lets your imagination run run wild. See, what could you do? What would stop you going to Peru? What What would stop you going to teach or work in Karatha? What would stop you going and working with street kids in Perth or Calcutta? A very well known quote. I hope you've seen it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot believed in resurrection. Do the maths. It's right, isn't it? You're no fool to lose what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. As your imagination runs runs wild, I hope your mind starts to consider questions like, Well, what are the needs? Uh, Where's the greatest needs and and opportunities? What makes an eternal difference? Well, Paul worked out the answer to that. He said, I believe, so I speak. Can you do that? Can you speak? Got a mouth? Can you speak clearly? I'll make a bold observation at this point. Of the 18 to 21-year-old Christians in WA with the God-given capacity to understand and speak the gospel, a fairly high proportion are in this room tonight. I think that's true. I haven't done the maths, but I think it's true. Who will take the gospel to post-Christian Europe 
if not you? Who will take the news of Christ's resurrection to the suburbs of Perth, if not you? Who will introduce school kids to Jesus, if not you? Our schools in WA are spiritual deserts. Almost everybody gets all the way through school without hearing a thing about Jesus. And they come to university. We need pastors and leaders for hundreds of churches if we're going to reach the people of WA and beyond. If you're not sure how and what you might be able to contribute to that and when you might do it and if you could do something, come to Challenge Conference. You've heard enough about that. Just come. But you might say, Tim, what if I can't speak? That's okay. There's lots of other ways that you can use your life for eternity. I've been visiting Africa for about the last 10 years or so, till COVID came, just training some pastors over there. I do it because a businessman approached me about 11 years ago and said, I've got a bit of money. He was a guy who did a PhD in engineering at a uni on the eastern coast. He started his own business. He invented a mineral processing process that he sold around the world. And he makes a reasonable amount of money out of it. Just a little business, but he makes money. And he looks for ways to invest that in growing the gospel of Jesus. And he came to me and said, Tim, if you'll move to Africa and train pastors in MTS, apprenticeship training, I'll fund the whole thing. Pay for you to go, um, and I'll pay for the training that you do. Now, it worked out that that wasn't, in my mind, the best way I could do it. So I've just been visiting Africa for the last few years. But it's his vision. So he's not someone who speaks well. He, he knows that. But he will fund other people who can speak to go and do that. He's doing exactly the same. We're, we're partners together. So you could move to Karatha. You might not be the person preaching in the church there. But boy, you could do a lot, couldn't you? To support and encourage, to invite people, to introduce them to the Lord Jesus. Your life stretches out in front of you. What are you thinking? What are you thinking about this next semester? Will it be yellow or yelped? Will it be, I'll just live for myself and keep Jesus on the side? Or will you seek to introduce people to the Lord Jesus? Soon or in a few years you'll graduate. You'll have to make some decisions about your life beyond university. If you're confident in the resurrection... You're liberated to not do what people expect.